Our Father, your word tells us that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. There are times that didn't seem right to us. It seems like there are things that would be good, but in fact they are being withheld, and we don't understand that, and we don't get that. We're all in uh, this place, in the same room, but in different circumstances. Uh, Job says, man is born to trouble. And that is true. Uh, Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. And uh, some guys have more on their plate than others. And there is a daily quota of difficulty and hardship that we must handle and, and work our way through responsibly. Sometimes it gets overwhelming, and that's when we wonder about that verse, no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Your desire is for us to become mature men. It's possible to be 40 years old and still act like a child. You are interested in conforming us to the image of Christ. We're not living in a candy store. We're living in a gymnasium. And you tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's you who is at work within us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. You are... Um, if you withhold something, it's, it doesn't mean you will always withhold it. It just means that you are now for a while, for a season. But we often lose that perspective. I pray, Lord, that you might give us the wisdom to step back and consider that you have things in mind for us that we can't see right now or understand. When we suffer, we don't suffer by chance, or it's not the luck of the draw. It's purposeful. And you have something in mind that you want to do in our lives. However, we get weary and we get fatigued at times. So I, I would pray this for us tonight, that as we wait upon you, you would renew our strength. You you promised to do that in Isaiah 40. Don't let us become weary in well-doing. Enable us, Lord, to trust you with what you're doing in our lives. In the midst of us, give us teachable hearts. Don't, uh, don't let us get impatient and get angry and throw something across the room like a little kid. But help us to consider what you're doing. Consider the work of God in the day of adversity. And then it tells us, Lord, that you, you make the good days and the bad days and they, and they all come from you. 
in the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. So for the guys who are really up against it, I pray that you would encourage their hearts that you're with them, and that you would enable them to consider that this is for a time, this is for a season. Give them a teachable spirit, keep them away from anger, help them to learn the lessons, help them to grow. And I think that's all of us. You're working in every one of our lives. As we open your book, open our hearts. We don't want an open Bible and a closed mind. We need an open Bible and an open mind and an open heart so you can teach us. We'll trust you to do that tonight by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're back in uh, Psalms tonight. Turn with me, if you would, to, to Psalm 19. Doing the series on the life of David. We're uh, looking at David and his issues, David and his stuff, David and his baggage. Uh, last week we looked at David and uh, guidance. We looked at David and his fears. Man, we have fears. We need guidance. We looked at David and his burden. We've got burdens. Uh, tonight, I want to do, uh, you know, David loved, the, David loved the Word of God. And that love would come out on the pages of Scripture. Uh, tonight, for, I, I, for lack of a better title, I would, I would call this a man in his Bible. Because you can't live without your Bible. Deuteronomy 32, speaking of the Word of God, Moses said to Israel, speaking of the Word of God, it is not an idle word for you, it is your life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is in this book and this book only. That's it. You say, oh, I, I saw there was another testament of Jesus Christ. No, there isn't. This is it. At the end of this book, it says if you add to it or take away from it, you'll be accursed. In Galatians 6, Paul says, I'm surprised that you are so quickly deserting him for another gospel. And then he goes on and chides them and says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should appear to you and give you a different gospel, let him be accursed. And he says it again. Well, we've got other books running around. Well, this is another testament. No, it's not. Well, it was given by an angel. Well, even Satan can present himself as an angel of light. You say, that's not very tolerant or diverse. It isn't. The gospel is not diverse. The gospel is not uh, multifaceted, is it? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's it. The gospel is exclusive. That doesn't go over real big in our culture, does it? And by the way, what Jesus said there in John 14 is either true or it isn't. 
You can't have it both ways. How many of you guys are husbands? See your hands. How many of you guys are fathers? Okay. How many of you guys are sons? Okay, good. We didn't want to hurt anybody's self-esteem. But you were left out. We didn't want you to be crushed. <laughs> just, just fooling around. If you're a husband, if you're a father, you're a leader. If you're a grandpa, you're a leader. It's very serious, our leadership as Christian men. When I finally got to the retreat this weekend, had a great time, uh, about 300 guys from Grace Church and College Station, and uh, half of them were A&M students. That was fun. <clears throat> and then half of them were guys that were, you know, anywhere from their 20s to their 70s. We had a man there who was 92. So we had a good mix. That's the body of Christ. Uh, before I would do the sessions, they ask a different guy each time to get up and uh, give his testimony. Or talk about a certain issue in his life as a Christian man. One of the guys got up. It was the last session. And he said, um, he basically said, I have been following the Lord for approximately 10 years. Now, he knew about the Lord prior to that. But... To use his phrase, I, I have been following the Lord. Jesus said in John 10, uh, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. There are a lot of people, you'll, you know, when you live in the Bible Belt, there are a lot of people who are professing Christians. What does that mean? They talk it, but they don't live it. It means they talk it, but they don't follow him. That's what it means. So I, I, I really liked what he said. About 10 years ago, I became a follower of Christ. I kind of woke up because I had these two little, I was married, I had these two little boys, five and seven. Now they're 15 and 17. And the Lord did a work in my life, and he said, I was struck by the parable that Jesus told in Luke 6, 39. We're going to Psalm 19, but in passing, I'm setting it up. Uh, in, in, in Luke 639, Jesus talked about the blind man who was leading the blind man. When you have a blind man leading a blind man, where are they going to end up? In a pit. Get that picture in your head. Here's a blind man being led by another blind man. That's disaster. They're going to wind up in a pit. And basically what he was saying is, up until 10 years ago, I was blind. I was blind as a leader. I was a husband. I was a father. I was setting a course. But you see, everybody is following somebody. Everybody is influenced by somebody. You're influenced by individuals. You're, in, you're influenced by philosophies. You're influenced by books. You're influenced by certain teaching. And the problem is this. Before we come to know Christ and before we are followers of Christ. Not only are we blind, but those who we are listening to who don't know him, they are also blind. 
That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. This guy became aware, his eyes were opened, he saw the light of Jesus Christ, came into his heart, changed his heart, changed his mind. He was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He became a follower of Christ. And he said, it struck me one day that if I was going to be a follower of Christ, I needed to listen to Christ. And I needed to get my marching orders from Christ, and I needed to be... I've got a family. He's entrusted me with a family, with a wife and two kids. He wants me to follow him. I need to, I, I, I need to know what he wants me to do. And he said, it dawned on me that I was going to have to make that a priority. So he began to get up earlier than he would normally get up in the morning. And he would get his coffee and he would get his Bible. And he got a Bible study guide and a calendar, and he just began re reading through the Scriptures to see what the Lord had to say to him. That's great. That's how it's supposed to be. That's exactly how it's supposed to be. Uh, in Psalm 19, David talks about the importance of the Word of God. Um, because you see, here's the, here's the deal. We are living our lives off some kind of information. We are living our lives off some kind of perception. And we should understand that even as Christians, there is an adversary, the devil, and one of the things that he does is that he attempts to deceive. Matthew 24 talks about great deception. Uh, you read the scriptures, you read Daniel, you read Revelation. There's going to be a great falling away. Why is that? People are going to be deceived. Um, you know, I heard, I heard this so many years ago, I can't even tell you who I heard it from. But somebody was talking about how they train agents who go after counterfeiters. And if I'm not mistaken... Their training involves, you got to be able to recognize counterfeit money. They never show them counterfeit money. Never. They, however, will take them to a U.S. <laughs> Mint. They will show them the paper. They will show them the coinage. They will get them so familiar with the real, authentic money that if a counterfeit ever crosses them, they can recognize it by touch. They can recognize, this was before the holograms and all that stuff. They can just recognize it by feel and by touch and by sight. Although they've not seen the counterfeit, you see, they're so immersed in the genuine that when the counterfeit shows, it's obvious. Now, that's how you live the Christian life. Psalm 19, David is talking about the Word of God. He's talking, to, he, he loved the Word of God. He was a, a man of the Word. And there are two ways that God reveals himself. There is what we call general revelation, and I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes on this because it's in the first six verses. There is general revelation, and then there is uh, specific revelation, which is the Bible. Watch general revelation in, in Psalm 19. 
David says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. So on a clear night, have you ever gone out by yourself or with your wife and the stars are everywhere? Maybe you're up in the Rockies somewhere. I don't know. I, I remember we were driving. We flew into Colorado Springs with our kids and we were driving up to, I don't even know where we're going, Breckenridge or Vail or something. We didn't go the north. We went the back way anyway. And we're driving and... I had to get out and check something, the tire, and I got out, it's probably 11.30 at night, and I got out, opened the door, and I just glanced up and boom, because it was so clear and we were so high. I mean, it just about knocked me over, and I had everybody get out of the car, everybody. And Mary said, I don't want to get out, get out. Uh, I said it kindly. Get out of the car. Get out of the car, Edith an Archie Bunker joke. No, I just said, you got to see this. You got to see it. So she got out for, you know, and, she, and then she stayed. This is unbelievable. We're all just up there. This is, because you see stars here and there, you know, in Dallas. But man, we're up there in the Rockies. It's clear. What are we at? 9,000 feet. And we just looked. We just stared. We got the coats, put them on. You go, this is unbelievable. What was that about? The heavens are telling of the glory of God. No, no, that's interesting. They're telling. You look at those stars, you look at those constellations, you look at the Big Dipper, Little Dipper, you look at all of those stars. What's that all about? The heavens. You look at the heavens, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. By the way, everybody in the world can see this. Everybody, no matter where you are. If you've got a clear sky, you can see... The glory of God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. There is a message in the stars. And I'm, talking, I'm not talking about astrology. That's the wrong message. So the heavens are telling. Look at verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. But there's still a message. What is the message? It's in verse 1. That there is a God and he deserves glory. That's what the stars are all about. Four, their line, their orbit has gone throughout the earth. Their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens. Its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from his heat. I might have mentioned this couple weeks ago that when we were in California over the break at Christmas, we went to Hearst Castle, we came down, uh, we're at San Simeon Bay, the sun is going down, and they had about three or four days straight with unbelievable sunsets. So we pull over to this beach, there are just four or five cars, and I mean that sun's going down fast, and you got the ocean, you got the waves and all this, and so I whip out that iPhone, that new iPhone Siri, I said, take video perfectly. I didn't say that, I just, but I took the video, I'm doing this, and so, and you're watching that sun, and I was going to text it to my kids. I mean, it was just gorgeous, and I'm doing that, and Mary's over here, she's got hers out, her, you know, everybody on the beach got their iPhone out, you know, doing this. What a day in which we live, huh? So I'm watching this, and that sun's going down, and that sun's going down, and the waves, I mean, it was just unbelievable, and then I just kind of pan over, and, there, and I said, and there's mom, she's got her iPhone out, you know. And she waves. 
And then I say, and then up there on the mountain, see up there on the mountain, there's Hurst Castle. And then I caught out of my eye, the sun was going down, and I caught the moon coming up over the mountains. And I turned and I said, and there is the lesser light, because the greater light just went down and ran its course. That's called uh, general revelation. I've been reading the biography of Charles Hodge, who was the great theologian at uh, Princeton Seminary back when Princeton was a good seminary in the 1800s, a giant of a man. It's interesting, I just finished it this week, and they said as giant as his mind was, his heart was greater. He had a mind for God and he had a heart for God. Um, he was interacting, he wrote a book on Darwinism to respond to Darwin. What was interesting during that time, and he'd studied in Germany and had been in Europe, and what was interesting, the great scientists at that time, the vast majority of the great scientists were Bible-believing Christians. Uh, at a particular time in the 1800s, a new, uh, a new science building was built at uh, Cambridge. And the head of the uh, department, who was a Bible-believing Christian, thought long and hard about which Bible verse should go over the entrance to the door. They believed that when they were studying science, they were studying the work of God. You see. That's general revelation. Everybody sees it. What that is designed to do is it is designed to cause people to give glory to God. But the Bible tells us, and you can look it over in Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18, uh, it kind of follows the same thing. Every man, it says, every man knows that God exists because by observing God in nature and because the truth of God has been written on our hearts. But what do we do when we see the stars, when we see the creation? Do we worship him? No, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness is what we do. And so we don't respond to God, we'll create up. We'll worship the stars, we won't worship the creator of the stars. That's the story of mankind because of our hearts. Our foolish hearts are darkened, okay? So when we, when we see the revelation of God in nature because of our hearts, we won't worship God, we won't give glory to God, but we'll worship the creation rather than the creator, you see. That's because we are born physically alive but spiritually dead. At a certain point, Christ comes into our lives, changes us, draws us to himself. We hear his voice, we follow him because he has opened our eyes, we've been born again, we are new creatures, creatures, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new, the scripture says. We are born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. Okay? So now we're following Christ. Now, now we can understand the Bible. You see, now we can appreciate natural creation. Turn over to, uh, turn over to, uh, where am I going? 1 Corinthians 2. We, we need to understand there is a blindness. You know, we talk about the blind leading the blind.
Look at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2. A natural man does not accept the things of, of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has not known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? He says, but we have, we have the mind of Christ. Uh, it, 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 it's interesting that what happens is, is, is that a, a man who is physically alive, because of the darkness that's in his heart, instead of seeing the stars, instead of seeing the revelation of God and responding to it, he denies it. He absolutely denies it. Uh, he can't appraise it because of what's in his heart. Christ comes into our heart. He opens our eyes. Now, it is the man whose eyes who have been opened who can appreciate the Bible and the Word of God. If you go back to Psalm 19, he immediately goes in to what is now called, what, what the theologians would call, specific revelation. So general revelation is nature. It's the creation. It's what you see on the nature channel that they play over and over again. It's what they do on National Geographic with the penguins and their instincts. And it's what they do with the dolphins. And it's what they do with the, the herds in Africa and the savanna. And you, you, any watch, you ever watch any of these nature programs? And they just marvel. Oh, they just marvel. Don't they? And, and the cameras, and I worked seven years on this thing. Earth by David Attenborough. Earth. Well, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. How about one David called God? How about one called Jesus? By him all things were created. They're not going to do that. So don't hold your breath. Okay? That's general revelation. So these nature channels are all about general revelation, but they won't give glory to God, will they? They're proving Psalm 19. So if I can ever get back to Psalm 19, David moves in to the Word of God, to specific revelation. God has re revealed himself specifically in the Word of God. Look at, um, look at verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord, and he's going to use some synonyms for the Word of God. He'll use the word law, he'll use the word testimony, he'll, he'll use precepts, commandment, judgments, sometimes you'll read statutes. Those are all synonyms for the Word of God. All right, let's read this. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Stop thinking about this. So this guy that said I became a Christ follower, and I'm a leader, and I've been the blind guy following the blind, whoever I was following, they were blind, I was going into a pit, but now Jesus, I'm following Jesus, um, so what do I do now? Well, I want to get to know him. Well, how do I get to know him? Through the word of God. So that becomes a priority in my life because this is how the Lord speaks to me. Okay? Listen, we're living in an age where everybody is saying the Lord told them to do something. Aren't we? There's a little devotional that's huge called Jesus Calling. It's everywhere. Be careful of it. It's dangerous. You know why it's dangerous? Typical, typically, devotions, you know, for, you know, for the day. Oswald Sanders, my utmost for his highest. Uh, what did I say? Oswald Sanders, he wrote Spiritual Leadership. His stuff is good, too. 
Yeah. But thanks for checking that. It's all Oswald Chambers. My utmost for his highest. Great devotional. You know what he'll do? He'll have a scripture, and then he'll give a brief exposition, explanation of the scripture. Pull out a nugget, you're on your way. You see? Or morning and evening, Charles Spurgeon. Absolute dynamite stuff. He'll take scripture, he'll give you a nugget, he'll give you an insight. It's all based on the word of God. But now there's this little devotional book. It's everywhere. It's huge. It's huge. It's called Jesus Calling. I probably, I think I mentioned it in here once. Christians are buying this thing right and left. I looked at it. You open it up. There's no Bible verses. Oh, there is an, at the very bottom in minuscule four-point type that if you're over 35, you can't even see. <laughs> it's in Braille down there. You can kind of... <laughs> And what it is, it's some gal, and it's the impressions the Lord has given to her. And she's written those down. That's all it is. It's Jesus talking to her. Hey, you know what? Let me tell you something. That's not how Jesus talks. This is his word. And then down on the bottom, then even, and they don't even print out scripture. It's just stuff that she thinks the Lord is saying to her, and she's written it down, everybody's reading. Oh, oh that's, hold on. That's not the word of God. That's somebody's impression. And then down on the bottom, there's no scripture. And then on the bottom, in tiny little four-point type, there's a scripture reference. Oh, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. That's dangerous. Yeah, it is. Read your Bible. You see, it's hard for me to read the Bible. Well, you know, it's hard to learn the multiplication tables, too. All right? I remember my mom sitting with me in that kitchen, those flashcards. <laughs> Had to learn my nines. I never thought I'd get through the sixes. You remember that? I never thought I'd get that, but she made me do it. I didn't want to do it. She knew I'd need it. She didn't know there'd be iPhones with, compu with calculators. She didn't know that, because back then you had to know the stuff. You had, to, you had to do it out, longhand. So I had to learn. I was forced to learn, and I, I had to work at it. There are some things in the Scripture you can read, and, and, and if you're a rookie and if you're new to it, you can re read through John. Just read through John if you're new. Just read through the book of John. You can get it. Oh, there's some parables in there, and Jesus will explain them. But, you know, we live in an amazing age. We have so many study devices you can download uh, I, I, I have the, 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 the ESV, uh, English Standard Version, downloaded on my phone, the ESV Study Bible. I can be in an airline terminal somewhere, you know, reading a passage, and then I'm thinking, now it doesn't, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I just hit the button, and here comes the ESV Study Bible, Bible Notes, on my phone. That's unbelievable, isn't it? What a day and age we live in. Technology. So, you get into the Bible. If you're a night person, read it at night. If you're a, day, a morning guy, read it at night. But read it. Because you can't live without it. It's not an idle word for you. It's not a, you're going to follow somebody. You're listening to somebody. You're being influenced. You're believing something. Why not listen to what he has to say? Watch what happens when we get into the Word of God, into the Bible. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Does your soul ever need to be restored? 
Mine does. But that parallels the Psalm 23, verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. See, sometimes I peel off. I'll go this way or this way. He wants to lead me in a path of righteousness. And I say, well, I'm going to go this way because I, I, I know what's best. We've all done that. And then we say, I'm going to do this. And, oh, I don't need to listen. I'm going to go this. And then you get beat up and you get knocked around. And you go, that wasn't too smart. And then you do it again about 15, 30, 58 times. And then at some point you go, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Maybe I'll obey him. Maybe I'll try that. All of us, Isaiah says, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And when we do that, we hurt ourselves, we damage ourselves. So where do we go? We go to Christ, and what does he do? He restores our what? Soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's us. We're simple. When we're young, we think we're smart. When, we, when we're young, we think we know what we're doing, but we don't. When we're young, we're confident and we're strong-willed. I read something to you out of J.I. Packer's Knowing God a while back. I want to give you another shot. He has a chapter called These Inward Trials, and the question is, why is the Christian life so hard? Why is the Christian life... Why is there so much... Why is it so painful? Why is, uh, why do I, why am I always getting the crud kicked out of me? Why? Why? And I look around and I see these people and their lives seem to work and they all seem to be happy and then, you know, they, you know, anyway. He's answering that question in here. Um, He's talking about when you come to know Christ, when you're a believer, and I'm just going to pick it up and just listen to a section of this. He's talking about grace. He says, this is what all the work of grace aims at, an even deeper knowledge of God and ever closer fellowship with him. Grace is God drawing us sinners closer and closer to himself. How does God and grace prosecute this purpose? Not by shielding us from assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil, nor by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances. Uh, nor yet by shielding us from troubles created by our own temperament and psychology, but rather by exposing us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to him more closely. That's brilliant. You don't hear that in a lot of Christian circles. It's the exact opposite, isn't it? It twists this, it's a deception, and it's a lie. And then I, then, I, then I love this. This is the ultimate reason from our standpoint why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort and another. It is to ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. The reason why the Bible, that's important, spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, and a sure refuge and help for the weak is that God spends so much of his time bringing us bringing home to us that we are weak, both mentally and morally, so that we dare not trust ourselves to find or follow the right road. See, how much of our life is trusting in ourselves that we know the path, that we know the road, that, and what does he do? He lets us fail. And we get worn out, and we get weak. Why do we get weak? We have nowhere to go except him. 
He keeps driving us back to Christ. He keeps driving us back to reliance upon him. Talked about it, I think, last week. Paul had the thorn in the flesh. He asked the Lord three times to remove it. The Lord said no, because he'd been taken to heaven. In order to keep me from exalting myself, a thorn was given to me. I asked the Lord three times to remove it. The Lord said no. My power is perfected in what? Weakness. But you feel weak at all? Good. Because see, when we're strong young bucks, we get in trouble. Don't we? Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Oh, you know. How's that self-reliance working out for you? See, we need him. We need him. When we're young, we're not real bright, we're blind, and we're self-willed. But we think we can do it because we're strong. So he's got him. God takes strong men and he makes them weak so that he can use them. Okay? And he wears us down with these troubles. You ever get tired of being tired? You just ever get fatigued? And you've gone in and you've done all the tests. And you're taking all the stuff. I mean, you got, you got the steroid shot, you got the testosterone cream, you got, I mean, you got it all. You've had a brain transplant. You've had it all. And you know what? You're still tired. Why are you so tired? Because life is hard, and he's your Lord, and he keeps driving you to him. Every guy in this room is being forced to trust him. There's something in your life you can't control, and you'll never control until we turn to him. Now, that's just Packer. And by the way, what's Packer doing here? He's summarizing the teaching of the Bible. If I were to go to the next page, which I actually will, he goes on and he talks about the fact that we butt up and we do dumb things and we make mistakes. He says, this truth has many... Um, oh, oh, oh. He says, the Lord takes many steps to drive us out of our self-confidence, to trust in himself. In the classical scriptural phase, uh, phrase for the secret of the godly man's life is to wait on the Lord. You do what you can do. You take legitimate steps. You do your work. But ultimately, for many times, the outcome, we're, we're trusting in the Lord. We're waiting on the Lord. Some of you guys, you're working on something. You're using your gifts. You're not being sluggers. We're to be active. We're to do what we can do. But you see, you can't control it all. So what are you doing? You're waiting on the Lord to bring resolution. <coughs> That's the name of the game in the Christian life. He goes on and says, this has many applications. One of its more startling, one of the most startling is that God actually uses our sins and mistakes to this end. See, a lot of us get all uh, paralyzed because, oh, I screwed up over there and I made that mistake. And I, oh, yeah, yeah, you did. And so did I. Man, we got a ton of them. I could write a multi-volume series on my screw-ups. So could you. Right? And so you look back and you just paralyze. Oh, I can't believe I did this and I did that and I did that. Yeah, yeah. But guess, here's the good news. God's sovereign over all that and that's part of the plan. God actually uses our sins and mistakes to this end. He employs the educative discipline of failures and mistakes very frequently. It is striking to see how much of the Bible deals with men of God making mistakes, God chastening them for it. And then he goes down the line. Abraham, Moses, David, 
Jonah. That's in the Bible. Oh, but if you never read the Bible, how would you get that? Right? John Flavel said to see a man humble under prosperity is one of the greatest rarities in all of the world. Let me say that again. To see a man humble under prosperity is one of the greatest rarities in the world. Why? Because the scripture makes it very clear that prosperity and money, if you're not careful, will turn your heart. Read 1 Timothy 6. Those who want to get rich fall into a snare and a trap and temptation. How many times do you hear that being taught? It causes their soul many a pain. It's a danger to want that stuff. And most of us can't handle it. So you know what? God keeps us going and God gives us enough, but you never quite got, most guys are never quite where you'd like to be. Why is that? You can't handle it. And apparently I can't either. <laughs> but what was that verse I quoted? No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So maybe you're not there financially. Oh, my goals haven't been met. Well, join the club. But have we made it so far? Huh? You're still breathing. You got clothes on. Looks like he ate several times today. <laughs> Me too. We're all right. Yeah, but I wish I had more. Yeah, well, how much How much you want? Well, I'd like to have, you know, man, if I could have five, six, seven million put away for retirement. Well, that'd be good. Don't count on it. Well, this deal might come through. Well, good. Maybe. But what if it doesn't come through? Let's say it doesn't. Oh, gosh, what are you going to do? Well, I guess I'll have to trust him. Well, shoot, you don't want to do that. <laughs> right? That's what he wants us to do. And when he trains, it does, does, has he blessed us? He's blessed us. It's crazy how he's blessed us, isn't it? It's just unbelievable how he's blessed us. And, 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 and some have more than others. Fine, fine, great. Some guys can handle it and it doesn't turn their heart to their heads. God bless them. God bless them. I mean, God uses mistakes and failures and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And see, that's why we're studying David's life, because who was the king of mistakes? Oh, David. He was right there in the top five with Moses, who was one of the greatest. Uh, right up there with Abraham, who's the father of Israel. I mean, you look at all these guys in the scripture. See, these things, 1 Corinthians 10, says the Old Testament, these things are written for our instruction. It's in the Bible. But if you never read the Bible, how do you know about it? You see? How do you know how God leads a man if you never read the Bible, which says, here's how God leads a man? Am I making any sense? Okay. Okay, I, I, okay let's move. Uh, I'm, I'm still in Psalm 20, verse... Uh, Seven, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Uh, now, see, we're living in a day where we don't want any commandments. We don't want any at all. We want to be totally free, don't we? You know, a good father says to his son, don't touch that stove, it's hot. Anyone as a kid do <laughs> oh, you dumb bozo. <laughs> you don't say it, you're thinking it. 
And then you remember when you touched the hot stove. Your mom said, don't touch that stove. We all learn the hard way, don't we? Seems like it. But see, God says, don't do that. Do that, but don't do that. Any good parent says that to their kids. Okay. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. I'm all for some judges doing righteous stuff. Aren't you? I don't want to go down that road too much tonight, but I'm kind of ready for that. And so are you. Well, guess what? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? You know what helps me when I read these insane decisions that are absolutely irrational and without logic or law or merit or reason? You know what helps me? Just the fact that every one of these justices, even the ones on the Supreme Court, every one of those justices on the Supreme Court, they're going to make an appearance at the Supreme Court. That just helps me. <laughs> but see, if I don't ever read the Bible, how would I know that? How do you keep a calm and stable heart as you watch this country fall apart before our eyes? How do you do it? I'm telling you, you better be in a Bible. You better be reading what God says. You better be understanding who runs the world, who runs the nations, who puts up leaders, who sets them down, who blows on them, and they wither. If you don't get that, and if you don't get it on a, on a regular basis, you're going to be in turmoil, you're going to be troubled, you're going to be upset, you're going to be PO'd half the time, and, and you're, you're just going to be miserable with no, with no hope for the future, with no peace in the present, having trouble sleeping at night. Why? Because this thing is all falling apart. Yeah, it is. And you study history. You know the history books. You know what happened in Germany. You know, uh, uh, you know what happened in Stalinist Russia. You know that. You know all that stuff. And you're just watching it. You're just watching it. Oh, by the way, the Lord's watching it. Can I show you his response? It's in the Bible. Psalm 2. So the next time you hear some crazy, nutso legislation or, or czar <laughs> doing this or doing that, rebelling against God, Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. Don't they do that? Yeah. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And if you don't think that's not what's going on, you're crazy. Because it is. Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters, chains apart, and cast their cords away from us. We don't want this stuff. We don't want this God, Christian stuff, Jesus stuff. And we get all upset, man. I mean, we're, just, we're just in turmoil, okay? Watch this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. Right there. I tell you what, I'd been upset when I went to bed. I get up in the morning, get my coffee, get my Bible, read Psalm 2, and I'm okay just by reading that. Because it gives me perspective. You can read the rest of it. Okay. 
All right, okay, yeah, I, I got to do some things, and that clock's running. I want to I show you a couple things. It, in verses 7 through 14, he's talking about the Word of God, how important the Word of God is, and what the benefits of the Word of God. Uh, look at uh, 11. Moreover, by them, by what? By the Word of God, your servant is warned. You can't drive three miles without seeing a warning sign on a street, can you? Well, that's what God does for us. When I read the Word, I'm warned. All kinds of things, good things happening when I read the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Reproof, correction. Reproof is, no, 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 don't go, uh-uh. I don't want you going there. Come here, come here, get over here. No, I'm not talking to him. I'm, I'm just, it's a metaphor. God will do that to us, right? Or there's a warning sign. You know, you're going over a bridge, or the bridge is ice first. Oh, oh, oh that's a warning. Okay, so slow down. You know, children prison. Slow down, slow down. It's a war we got all these warnings. God does that to us because He's looking out for us. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Can you? No. Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. You know what's so hard about family gatherings at Christmas? The weird relatives come over. <laughs> right. And you got this weird uncle, and then you can already stand to be around this guy because he never, he never stops talking. The sucker just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. And he's a Christian, and he's got an opinion on everything, and he drives everybody nuts, and everybody shuts him out and wishes he'd leave. And you're dreading him coming over because the guy's... Now, can he see that? No, why not? He can't discern his errors. It's a hidden fault. Oh, by the way, you know why he's dreading coming to your house? Because he's got to put up with you. And he's thinking all the things you got in your life that he sees that you can't. Isn't that amazing? By the way, that, that uh, Luke 6, 39, when Jesus said a blind man leads another blind man into a pit, the context is, is the foolishness of, of judging others when you yourself are really not judging your own errors. That's what the context is. Doesn't mean we don't have courts. It doesn't mean we don't have church discipline. Jesus is just making that comment. It's the same idea that if you're going to judge somebody else and take the, uh, the splinter out of their eye, take the two-by-four out of your eye first. That's what that's all about. Turn over to Psalm 119 real quick. Psalm 119 is all about the Word of God. Okay? Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. Psalm 119 is longer than many books in the Bible. Uh, if you turn there, if you look at verse 1, then I flip one page, I flip two pages, I three, four. In my Bible, I, I think I flip, I go from 880 to 888. Eight pages of Psalm 119. It has 176 verses. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. Virtually every verse is about the Word of God and the value of the Word of God. William Wilberforce was uh, a great man of God who was used in slavery in the British Empire. He fought slavery um, all of his adult life. It was finally defeated, outlawed in Parliament just days before he died. But he was under tremendous pressure and strain and spiritual warfare as he was up against demonic forces. 
In his diary in 1819, there was this entry. I walked today from Parliament to Hyde Park Corner, repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. Repeating. Not reading. Repeating. He'd memorized Psalm 119. Memorized it. Eight pages of scripture he'd memorized. And you know what it did? It comforted his heart and his soul as he walked. Henry Martin was a great pioneer missionary in India, established a Christian church surrounded by Hinduism and demonic teaching and demonic spirits. The, the warfare and the strife was unbelievable. You know what he did? He memorized Psalm 119 so he wouldn't have to look it up. And as he went about his day, he would bring portions back to his mind. David Livingston. Dr. Livingston, I presume. You remember that? Stanley went looking for him in Africa. He disappeared. He was a missionary. He had disappeared because he'd go in to the most remote regions of Africa to try to reach the tribes everybody was afraid of. He wouldn't, he'd just go in and then they, couldn't, they didn't hear from him for years. So a newspaper actually sent Stanley, go see if you can find him. Is he dead? What happened to him? And after this arduous journey, I read Stanley's book. I read his biography. And after this arduous, unbelievable, finally, months and months and months in the interior of Africa, he goes into this village and he sees this old, old guy, white guy, with white hair and a white stash. And he says, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Hey, how you doing? Just going about his business, preaching the gospel, making disciples. When David Livingston was nine years old, guess what he memorized? Psalm 119. Nine years old. Flip over to Psalm 1. I, I want to tell you guys something. I, um, before my dad died, I didn't thank him enough for what he did for me. I thanked him. But I didn't thank him enough. I thought of things I should have thanked him for before he died. You, you ever felt that way about your dad? I mean, if you had a good dad. Some of you guys didn't. Some of your dads, your dad cut out on you, and that's, man, that's brutal. I had a good dad. I didn't realize how good a dad he was. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. He made, boy, he made some mistakes. He did, just like any of us. He was my age one time. He was 19. He was 22. He was 26. He was 62. Did he, made, did he do some dumb things? Yeah, just like I've done. Did he try to help me? Oh, yeah, he did. He, he was looking out for it. Tried to give me some advice. And, you know, I, most of the time I'd take it. Sometimes I'd be like, eh. Okay. You know, you know what I'm grateful? The older I get, the more grateful I am for my dad that every day, and I'm telling you, until the last six months of his life, when he got real sick and didn't have his normal routine, I mean every day. I remember as a little boy, 
waking up early a couple times, four years old, five years old, going in, and my dad was sitting at the kitchen table with his coffee and his Bible. I remember another time getting up early, I just woke up and I went looking for my dad, and he was in the living room, kneeling at the sofa with his Bible open. I thought every dad did that. Every dad doesn't do that. That's how I was raised. I thank God for that. That's why I do that. I was taught that. I was taught, that's what a man does. You get your Bible, you get your coffee, and you meet with the Lord. Because you got a family, you got a wife and kids, and you got to go out there and try to figure this stuff out. I'll tell you what, you don't want to be a blind guy following some blind guy. You want to be following the Lord Jesus, don't you? Psalm 1, it sums it all up. You say, it's the, how can it sum it up when it's the beginning? Well, it does. It just kind of uh, cuts to the chase in Psalm 1. And here's what it says. It talks about, watch this. Now, uh, now verse 1 to me is the blind leading the blind. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That's a description of those who are opposed to God. That is a description of those who don't acknowledge God. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel. Who is counseling you? Who is advising you? Who is teaching you? Who is influencing you in your life and the decisions that you make and the way that you live your life? Who is it? And that's why Proverbs, it's all about a father teaching his son in Proverbs. And one of the things that talks a son is to be taught by his father is you pick right friends. There's certain guys you avoid and certain guys you, you, you try to hang out with. Because friends are critical. Doesn't mean we don't have any relationships with unbelievers, but it means that they can't be in a, in a position of undue influence on you. It can't be in a position where you're looking to them to coach you and mentor you. Well, I need a life coach. How about Jesus? How about the Word of God? I'm not saying you don't go to mentors, but they better be mentors that are in the Word of God. Well, I need a counselor. You need a Bible counselor who knows Christ and knows the Word of God. That's who you need. Counselors are a dime a dozen. Quite frankly, my experience has been that a lot of screwed up people go into counseling. That's just my, there's no charge for that one, and it's not even worth paying for. But it's just fascinating to me how many screwed up people are, oh, I'm a counselor. I'm a, I'm a biblical counselor, really. Where do you go to church? I go to, oh, you know what, they don't even believe the word of God down there. Just because they say it, doesn't mean they are. Check somebody out. Ask. Ask somebody. Ask somebody. I'm looking for a biblical account. Someone who's wise, who's discerning. They're around. They're around. Ask. But don't get somebody who walks in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the path of sinners in the seat of scoffers. See? How blessed is the man who doesn't live his life following blind people. But look at verse 2. His delight is in what? The law of the Lord. Well, David didn't have the whole Bible. He just had Old Testament. We've got the whole Revelation now. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. 
Does that mean that's all you think about all day long? No, you got a job, you got work to do. But see, you put the Word of God in your heart. You put the Word of God in your mind. My, my dad got up in the morning, he'd get his coffee, he'd meet with the Lord, he'd read, he'd pray, he'd check in with the Lord, he'd read his scripture. Because see, when you do that, you get recalibrated. You get recalibrated to what is true and what is right and who's in charge and who God is. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Man, I got this big decision. What the heck am I going to do? All right, here's, uh, you read the Word of God. Or I'm all messed up because of something happened politically and they pulled this dirty trick and I go, read, all right? And in your calendar, which, you know, you, you, you get a little guide. Ask, I can give you some stuff. Shoot me an email. I'll give you a calendar reading through the scriptures. There's a hundred things you can do to get into it. But you consistently get into the Word of God. And, and see, you're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to discipline your time a little bit and you make it a priority in your life. You say, man, I'm busy. I know you're busy. I'm busy too. We're all busy. So you got to prioritize. And to me, I'm so cotton-picking busy, I better check in with the commander-in-chief first. And throughout the day. You say, I'm not a morning guy. Okay, read it at night. It doesn't matter. God's not looking. Well, he didn't read it till, you know, he didn't get to that till after 8 o'clock. God does not doing that. Just Everybody's got a rhythm. Go and just set up a time that works for you, and that's your time in the Word. Oh, you'll get opposition won't you? You try to consistently spend time in the Word of God, you're going to get opposed. Just count on it. So you got the Word of God in your head and in your heart. Oh, oh by the way, when you do that, guess what happens? By the way, you started with this. You have How many husbands? How many fathers do we have? Grandfathers? I ask you to raise your hand. It's okay. We don't want to be the blind leading the blind. You know what we want to do? We want to bring favor. We want to bring good leadership to those who are under our care. How do you do that? By being in the Word of God and obeying it. Look at the next verse. The man who is in the Word of God, it says he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. And then whatever he does, he prospers. You say, well, there's prosperity theology, Stu. Well, God's prospered all. If you're in the Word, you're going to prosper. It, it, but see, it's not just money. It, it's in relationships. You're in the Word of God. You're going to have a better marriage than when you weren't in the Word of God. Oh, is everything going to be worked out and you're not going to have problems? No, it doesn't say that. But as you go through problems and you work them out, you're becoming more mature and a better leader. That's what's happening. That's a blessing to a wife. And, and maybe... Ten years ago, you said, that's it, I'm out of here. But now you say, no, that's not an option. I'm staying. I'm just going to be here. I'm going to be faithful. And so you prosper the lives of others because you become a servant. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. I've got to tell you, I cannot read this passage without thinking of Bibbery, England. And I, if, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago, I, I referenced this. Um, when the first time I was invited to go to England to speak, uh, I was there for two or three days and spoke. And we had some friends who said, you got to stay and you got to visit, you know, go to some places. Go to the Cotswolds. I didn't even know what the Cotswolds were. But it's where they shoot all those old BBC dramas with the castles and the grounds. This is in the Cotswolds. I mean, and, one, and a buddy of mine said, everywhere you look is a postcard. And he was right. It's just, out, it's just two hours out of London. And we had some friends that said, whatever you do, go to Bibbury. B-I-B-U-R-Y. One of the English poets said it's the most 
beautiful village in England. I haven't seen a lot of villages, but of what I've seen, it's the most beautiful. It's pristine. Pristine. Uh, in front of the Swan Hotel, the Swan Inn, they call it that because of the swans that are right across. It used to be an old stagecoach stop in the 1600s. But there is a clear, there is a clear stream, a clear river, spring-fed that runs just over there as you walk outside. The oh, and there's the old mill and the water wheel over there built in the 1500s, just over the covered bridge. It's pretty, it's pretty nice. And you just can't believe you're there. It's like you're in a movie until the buses roll up and 900 Japanese tourists get out. <laughs> And that happens about every 15 minutes, but it's, it's a neat place. But there's this water, and that you can walk up to where the, where the, where the river Coln, C-O-L-N, the headwaters. It's just a spring bubbling out of the ground. And then that water goes in front of the Swan Inn, and you can track it and walk it for about a mile, mile and a half. And you just walk it where the old uh, um, the cottages for the, the spinners of wool lived you know, when England was the greatest wool producer in the world. And you just keep walking it, and you go around, and you come around, that river turns, and then you turn, and you get to Bibri Castle that was built in the 12th century. And right next to it is the Norman Church, where they still hold Anglican services every morning. It was built in the uh, 7th century, if you can imagine. Remember the first time Mary and I saw that church, and I walked up, massive door, and I just took that big thing, and I went, <coughs> and it opened. Walked right in. Amazing. So there's this castle, and then there's this old Saxon church, and that river's just winding around. And you come around those rose gardens, and I want to tell you something. Then there's this open space in front of this castle. It's got to be 200 acres. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. With cattle pasturing every once in a while. And I want to tell you something. There are three of the most magnificent oak trees I've ever seen in my life. Right on the banks of that spring-fed cold river. Massive, massive oaks. Biggest oak in England is in Sherwood Forest. It's 1,000 years old. Weighs 26 tons. The waist of it is 36 feet around. And it's 46 feet high. These three oaks are pretty close to it. And the first time we walked around and I saw those oaks, and then we walked right up to them, and I just stood there. And he shall be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water. Do you know that the average 40-foot oak tree will take in 50 gallons of nutrients a day. 50 gallons. Think about an oak tree. It's not just what's above the ground, it's what's under the ground. And a lot of times, the roots spread out two to three times past the crown. See, the, the, the secret to what we see that's so beautiful is what's underneath. And I'm going to tell you something, guys. That's the Christian life.
It's what's done in private that makes a man a public leader. It's what's done in private in the presence of the Lord, just you and him in your Bible. Opening your Bible, saying, Lord, open my eyes today. Let me glean something. I got my calendar that I read through, try to read through the Bible every year. It struck, I don't, you know what struck me? I got to tell you, this kind of stunned me. I turned 62, and I started reading through the Bible every year when I was 32 years old. It struck me just recently, I've read through it 30 times. And I feel like I'm just kind of getting going. But I'm grateful for that heritage. It's just the grace of God that he, he enabled that to happen in my life. Uh, oh, by the way, you know, when I, you know what was going on in my life when I was 32? I was a young buck, strong-willed, going my own way with my plan for my life. And he made me weak, and that's when I went through that three-year depression. And what happened to me? I started opening my Bible and turning to Psalms. It was good for me that I was afflicted, David said. I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty. I just say it to say the Word of God is priority. Make room for it in your life. Because if you do, you're like that tree planted by streams of water. Do you know how much joy those oak trees bring to people? Do you know how much joy a man who's in the Word of God with a submissive spirit to Jesus Christ, do you know how much joy he can bring to those around him? See, that's what God wants to do through us when we count on him. And we're not blind guys following the blind. We're Christian men following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a whole new game. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. We could study Psalm 119. We could take 10 years to study Psalm 119. It's, it's just inexhaustible. But thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that you've never lied to us. Thank you for that. When we're hurt, you console us. When we're fearful, you give us courage. Thank you that it is a living word. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're grateful that we live in a country where we can study your Bible, where we can meet on Wednesday nights. We, we can meet for Bible study on Wednesday nights. We have that freedom. We're not sure how long we'll have that freedom. We might have it a long time. We might have it a short time. We don't know. But we're not scared and we're not worried because that's in your hands. We would just pray that with the freedom that we have to read your word, that we might take advantage of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.